All righty then. Welcome to episode 59 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I want to thank you all once again for joining me. If you're checking out episode 59 on the YouTube channel and haven't done so already and are enjoying the content, of course, don't forget to click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. Or if you're checking it out on the audio version on Spotify, iTunes, or the other platforms, same thing if you haven't done so already. Click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. Well, you'll notice I use a different opening today, and that's because episode 59 is a kind of happy birthday to one of my favorite people who ever worked in the movie business, and one of the most talented people, for sure, who ever worked in the movie business. That would be James Eugene Carey, or Jim, if you prefer, who turned 62 at the stroke of midnight here in New York, you know, He's already 62 in Australia, I assume. But I've been a fan of Jim Carrey from very early on in his career. Uh, as a, a Gen Xer, Generation X, right in the middle of Gen X, uh, Jim Carrey first came to my attention via a movie, which is, if we're being honest, not that good. Uh, but he's great in it. And he was about 22 when it was shot. And it's a sort of a comedic vampire film called Once Bitten with a quite famous uh, fashion model named Lauren Hutton who plays, you know, a centuries-old vampire. And um, Jim Carrey, as a character called Mark Kendall, he has a girl, and he's a virgin, and she's a virgin. And it's almost like a cockeyed uh Wicker Man scenario where they need a virgin. She needs a virgin, a male virgin, to take, I don't even know what she's taking, but she she needs the blood of a virgin. She's going to die. She's thousands. The, the plot is total ridiculous. But Carrie sells it. He gets to do some of his, uh, like, facial gymnastics and the kind of uh, yoga-level contortions that he was able to put his body through, you know, even at that time. And the movie is fun. It's just fun. You could find it on streaming. I don't know exactly which platforms. I know that it had been on Netflix for a time. It was on Amazon Prime Free. It's been on Tubi. Should be able to find it somewhere. But just to see a great comic slowly finding his footing and finding his way in motion pictures. And it's interesting. I didn't know this, but Jim Carrey appeared uh, on Johnny Carson. It might have been one of the things that got him the role in Once Bitten. I'm not sure of that, but I think it was in 1984 that Jim Carrey, who's from Canada, had, had come over. And he was doing stand-up. He, he had impressions. He did Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson and Nicholson, and he had a whole bunch of impressions, even at that young age, that really good. He, did, he hadn't done the Bruce Dern yet. I claim his Bruce Dern is one of the best impressions that any comedian has ever done of any person ever. Because Bruce Dern is spectacular. He even got to roll it out at the Oscars a decade ago with Bruce and Laura Dern in attendance, and it was just gold. But Jim on with Carson killed it. And you could see that Johnny was really impressed because there are times where Carson would have a comic on and he wasn't enjoying it or he's like, this guy doesn't have anything. But if you look up that YouTube of Jim Carrey's first appearance on Carson, there's no doubt Carson was dazzling. And as long as he'd been in the business, Carson had had the show for more than two decades at that point. 
and would continue on for another eight years. Um, it took a lot to get the kind of reaction that Johnny Carson had at the end of Jim Carrey's set. It just showed he was special. He was different. He was not like anyone else. It's a cliche, but he was not like anyone else. Not even Robin Williams. I know they had certain similarities, incredible ability to freeform and ad-lib, but they were still different kinds of comics. And you know, Jim he has joked about how the times that he got to spend with Robin Williams. He said, Robin always called me maestro. He always called me maestro. I got such a kick out of that. Maestro, maestro! <laughs> but you look at Jim Carrey's performance in Once Bit, you see somebody finding their footing. Not sure if this is going to be his future, right? You don't know. He was probably just happy to get to work and be in a, not a straight-to-video, or a Hollywood film. And Lauren Hutton, as I say, there was a little bit of an irony. She was a fashion model who at that time was already considered a little bit older than the standard. And she was playing a woman who was 2,000 years old and trying to stay young. So there was like a, a kind of in-joke with that part. But Francis Coppola presumably had seen once bit, or perhaps only had had Jim recommended, but he hired him for a pretty big supporting role in a terrific movie, a little bit like a Back to the Future type film. Peggy Sue got married with Nicolas Cage, uh, although Kathleen Turner is the star. And if you're not familiar with that one, also terrific, worth seeing, where Kathleen Turner plays a woman who I believe it's at her 20-year high school reunion, seems to time travel back to her senior year in high school and has to deal with repercussions of the past and present and all this stuff. But Jim Carrey, not surprisingly, and Nicolas Cage is chewing scenery like crazy in that film. Like a lot of people have kind of, they don't like his performance. It's over the top. I think for what he tries to do, he's great. I happen to really like Nicolas Cage. But Jim Carrey steals every scene he's in in that movie. At age 23 or however old he was, when he is on screen, your eyes are focused on him, not on the star or the co-star, on him. So Jim, at that point, continued to work. He was doing his stand-up. He had a, um, a special, I think it was an HBO special. It might have been Showtime. But this was late 80s. He had a special. It was called Jim Carrey's Unnatural Act. And I didn't see that, but because I didn't, again, it's so stupid to even talk like this. We didn't get Showtime or the movie channel at that time, at that era. Yeah, my dad is like, ah, we don't need all the extra channels. So there are certain things you literally could not see just because you didn't subscribe to a certain channel and couldn't tune in at Saturday night at 8 or Sunday at 2 in the morning when something aired. This is life of somebody growing up as a Generation X. It was good, but it had its, it's had its negative points, one of which being things you really wanted to see, you were kind of, you could only see what your parents paid for. If they happened to get a certain channel, oh, look what's on, versus, no, get that channel. Maybe you could, you know, go to somebody's house if you're fortunate and watch it. So the idea is that Jim continued to work in stand-up, and he continued to work in movies. And he's told this story multiple times, uh, he was giving Clint Eastwood a Lifetime Achievement Award many, many years ago, in the 90s after, you know, Carrie's career had taken off. But Clint Eastwood is one of the people, similar to how Quentin Tarantino owes a debt of gratitude, or he would say, to Clint, because Clint championed very strongly at the 1994 Cannes Film Festival for Pulp Fiction to take the top prize. Um, Clint Eastwood cast Jim Carrey in the fifth and final Dirty Harry film. 
called the Deadpool, which I think is underrated. Um, the Dirty Harry franchise is kind of near and dear to me, but mostly because of my adoration of the first film and how really amazing it is in so many different ways that it's, you know, first R-rated action thriller of its type, that it's politically all over the place. It's the kind of movie you can argue from so many different positions. It's saying this, no, you're wrong, it's saying that. The fifth Dirty Harry film is, is a strong movie. I feel like it's a better film than the previous one, which was Sudden Impact, which is it's a really kind of dirty, grimy, I, I don't really like it. And The Enforcer with Tyne Daly, not so good. Magnum Force, the second one with David Soule, who unfortunately just passed away, uh, and Hal Holbrook, great old actor. It's okay. It's just okay. I would argue that the Deadpool is not nearly as good as the original, but out of the four, if somebody told me that they think the Deadpool is actually the best of the any of the sequels, I have no argument, because the casting. Because he got a young Clint got a young Liam Neeson and a young Jim Carrey in big supporting, or I should, in the case of Jim, an important supporting part would be more accurate. Liam's character is very important to the narrative. He's almost like, a, he's set up to be a red herring for a serial killer, more or less. But Jim plays a rocker, and in the movie, I think was the first use of um, Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. So Jim plays this kind of hard rocker who apparently has a drug problem named Johnny Squares. And um, Jim tells the story of when he met Clint, and um, Jim had sent an audition tape into... Uh, when it, he was up for this role. And again, he had enough credits at this point where he was not completely unknown. And um, he'd sent this audition tape to, to Clint, and, you know, Clint's company, and Clint saw it. And then when Jim came in to read for the part, he then does his Clint, Clint Eastwood impersonation. Clint says something like, hey, I, uh, I read your tape. I showed it to all my friends. You're a funny kid. Or whatever he says. Jim Carrey obviously does it a thousand times better. And Clint's in the audience giggling as he tells this. It might have been the AFI Lifetime Achievement for Clint. But the idea is that um, Clint gave Jim Carrey enormous room. And this is another reason why people like Clint as a director is that, yes, he works fast. He doesn't fuck around. But if an actor comes to him before a scene and says, can I try this? Th yeah, he's usually going to say yes. And again, the way Jim Carrey tells the story is that when he approached Clint, he said, there's a lot of stuff that's not in the script that I'd like to, can I try, Mr. Eastwood? And he, he said, Clint turned to the cinematographer and he said, why don't we just turn the camera on and just let him go? So there's, there's stuff in the Deadpool which was not in the script. Carrey's part was not a huge part, but there's more of him in the film than there otherwise would have been. And he makes a very strong impression. It's not a comedic part in any way, shape, or form. There's no, there's no snare. He is, it's a very serious part, a hard rocker who is a drug addict. And that's all I'll say for those who haven't seen the film and are interested. It's really worth, as I say, worth seeing Patricia Clarkson, who plays a reporter. She went on to, you know, Oscar nomination. Like, the supporting cast is, in the Deadpool is great. So then Jim was in movie uh, Earth Girls Are Easy. He actually has a tiny role in Clint Eastwood's next film, another box office disappointment, Pink Cadillac. Um, he does a little tiny bit from Jim Carrey's unnatural act in the movie. He's in it for, I think, less than 30 seconds. And Bernadette Peters kind of drags him, the character he's supposed to be playing. Uh, he's like, I can't take this anymore. Um, and 
the key thing in his career was that he was on a TV show called In Living Color. I never watched the show. There's so many people, there's Wayans Brothers, that thought that was the funniest sketch television comedy program ever, even more so than Saturday Night Live, uh, you know, Benny Hill, Laughing, those kinds of, of programs. I never saw it. I, maybe 30 seconds of it once. Um, I know Fire Marshal Bill, one of his famous characters. It's just, I don't know. I, I never tuned into it. So once Bit and Peggy Sue got married were movies that appeared to be always in rotation on HBO and Cinemax. And every time they were on, I watched, especially once Bit, because I was such a fan of Jim Carrey. And Peggy Sue Got Married, I just thought was a great movie overall. And I was kind of learning more about movies and Francis Coppola, this is the man who did The Godfather, you know, that kind of thing. But Jim Carrey's movie career did not take off until 1994, where he had the kind of year that is almost impossible. He had three major studio comedies that came out in the same calendar year. It's virtually unheard of. He had the, uh, excuse me, uh, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which came out of nowhere in January, now 30 years ago. It's almost up to its 30th anniversary. Um, and really did well at the box office, despite a lot of critics just savaging it. There were, there were critics who didn't get Jim Carrey. I've talked about it, even major critics, as successful as Clint Eastwood was as a filmmaker. There were major critics like Pauline Kael and Rex Reed who just thought the guy sucked. Not even, well, he's not a great actor. Pauline Kael thought he was a shitty filmmaker, too. And she got that wrong. What a joke. And Rex Reed did not really think that Clint was much of a filmmaker. And then later on, he, he came around and said, I, I couldn't have been more wrong than I was about Clint. I apologize for those terrible things or whatever. So, like, there's a critic for Entertainment Weekly at the time, Owen Cleaver, very, very solid critic, who was not a fan. He hated Ace Ventura, and he was so vicious in his review. He actually said, as Ace, Jim Carrey seems like an escape mental patient impersonating a game show host. That's a great line, but, bro, that movie was hilarious, completely inappropriate, and there's chunks of it that would not be repeated now. I totally understand. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, was kind of marginally funny then. <laughs> we can't really do this now. But to do, if you look at what he does in that film, and you come away thinking this guy sucks, well, I don't understand what you're looking at. How could you not appreciate, not just the effort, Chris Farley put in a lot of effort. We didn't think Chris Farley was particularly funny. But what he does in Ace Ventura, he basically hams it up, and yes, he's chewing scenery from first frame to last. But he does it with such style, with such pizzazz, with such confidence for his first big-time starring role where he knew this was going to get a wide release. Anyway, the film didn't do well with critics, did well with audiences. They immediately commissioned a sequel. Now, he had been hired, and he was working on The Mask as Ace Ventura hit. And then he got dumb and dumb. So in the same calendar year, he had three big hits. I feel like, I think the biggest box office hit without Googling it, I think The Mask ended up doing a total, like a bigger box office, like global gross, than even Dumb and Dumber. Dumb and Dumber, which came out in December, was a huge hit. Now, I didn't see Ace Ventura in theaters, but I did see The Mask twice in theaters, loved it, and I did see Dumb and Dumber. To me, Dumb and Dumber is the weakest of the three films. A lot of people love it. I know it's won sequels and, you know, even relatively recently. 
didn't really work for him. I, I don't love it. But he went from a relative unknown to a superstar. It's a cliche, but he did it almost overnight. It was that fast from Ace Ventura, and then, oh, he's got another movie coming out in the summer. And he was then cast in the third Batman film, Batman Forever, which I feel like it's crazy in the sense that it was an enormous, massive, dollar for dollar, um, inflation adjusted. I'm not sure about comparing to the Robert Pattinson from a couple of years ago, but for 1995, this is a movie that's now going on 29 years old, its worldwide box office gross was absolutely batshit insanely high. And I almost feel like inflation adjusted, I think that might be the biggest hit in the, in the entire you know, Batman pantheon with the amount of money that it pulled in for, for the day. Because it's a difference in ticket prices, summer 1995 versus, for example, 2021 or 22 or, or today. He's the best thing about Batman forever. They didn't give Val Kilmer enough to do as Batman, and I'm a big Val Kilmer fan as well. Didn't give him enough to do. Carrie gets to basically carry the picture, no pun intended. And Tommy Lee Jones, he had issues. Tommy Lee didn't like Carrie's acting style. They, they kind of butted heads. And he kind of half-jokingly said, if I, if I see Tommy Lee, you know, he's probably going to take a swing at me for some of the shtick that I pulled back then. But he wanted, we always want more, right? No matter how successful we become, we're never satisfied. It's part of the human condition, if I may get philosophical for a minute. But he made a shit ton of money for a movie called The Cable Guy, 1996. That was his following. He, he was the first actor to get $20 million. And then there was like something about he had said he, he had written a check for a certain crazy amount, like $10 million or $20 million to himself. Now he was finally going to be able to cash that check, you know, before he hit it big. The Cable Guy was not as much of a success as it probably should have been. People were expecting another straightforward laugh-out-loud comedy when, in fact, it's little bit of a satire and a black comedy. It's not what people were expecting. But it showed that he was trying to move into a different arena and to be taken more seriously and not just a clown and a comedian. And that kind of springboarded him to his greatest era, almost without question, where he made The Truman Show, Man on the Moon, back to back. And then a number of years after that, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Now, I am a fan of filmmaker of Eternal Sunshine, Mike Gondry. We know how I feel about Jim Carrey himself as a performer. And I, Kate Winslet is fucking great. Kate's great. I don't like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I found the film to be incredibly off-putting and just, it didn't work. Now, I can tell, it's brilliant. I can say that conceptually, just like with being John Malkovich and Charlie Kaufman, conceptually, wow. Adaptation, another Charlie Kaufman. Holy shit, fucking brilliant. Hate the movie. Hate, 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 hate. Hated being John Malkovich. Thought that adaptation fell apart in the second half. And Eternal Sunshine, I never sparked to it. I just didn't like it. While I was dazzled by the visuals and appreciated the performance. I actually felt that Jim was miscast in that because he has such incredible life force. He's such an unbelievably magnetic personality and he played a character who was just not funny. So I thought he was miscast. Kate, I thought, was perfectly cast. But that's neither here nor there. The Truman Show, to me, is a masterpiece. It's one of the best films of the 90s. 
I also think, oh, and obviously his performance is Truman Burbank, I was pissed when he wasn't nominated for Oscar. The same way I was angry that John Travolta took a Golden Globe for Best Actor uh, for Get Shorty and inexplicably wasn't nominated for Best Actor at those Oscars, the fact that Jim was not, did not even get the courtesy of a Best Actor nomination for what he did in the Truman Show. Did Truman Show, masterpiece, one of the best films of the decade. And that's something that many people would agree. Like if you go on YouTube, like movie reactors seeing it for the first time, they're almost all like, holy shit, how have I not seen this film till now? This is extraordinary. My favorite Jim Carrey film, though, is Man on the Moon. It's amazing that I could like anything more than The Truman Show, but what he does in Man on the Moon, and he caused a lot of problems on the set. There were rumors at the time that he was just fucking around. He wasn't fucking around. He was so deep into character. He was so deep into character. And I talked about this on a previous podcast. What he did in that movie was on another level. It was De Niro Raging Bull, De Niro Taxi Driver level of preparation. Now, De Niro was able to do what he did without running afoul of the director, fellow actors, getting into fights, making people wonder if he was, I think we got to throw a net on this guy, he's lost his mind. What he did in Man on the Moon, playing essentially two characters, the real-life guy, Andy Kaufman, great neck native, who was probably the first performance artist, certainly the first person of that type. Technically a comedian, but he only saw himself as a song and dance man. Um, but he was a troll. He was a troll. He was somebody who didn't really get, seem to give a shit if you liked him or hated him as long as you had a reaction. He was just trying to provoke. He was a provocateur. It's a great film. Milos Forman, same filmmaker who did Amadeus, one of the best movies ever made, almost without question, on Blue of the Cuckoo's Nest. I love Man on the Moon. I think it's extraordinary. A lot of people don't like it. It's one of Paul Giamatti's under the radar. You know, Giamatti is now getting so much acclaim for the holdovers, which I've also talked about. Longtime fan of Paul Giamatti. What Giamatti does in Man on the Moon is also incredible. Did not get the praise for it at the time. You know, he was, he was on his way up sideways and American Splendor still years away. But there's a moment in Man on the Moon, without spoiling it, because, again, if you haven't seen it, the movie is fucking brilliant. And again, there are a lot of people who don't like it. It's just a reconstruction. Blah, blah, blah. It's fucking brilliant. You know, that's another hill I'll go down on. Man on the Moon is a masterpiece. It's almost as good as Amadeus. It's almost as good as One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And that two of the great movies at Milos Mormon. But there's a moment in the film where Jim Carrey, as the other character he plays in the film, Tony Clifton, is on stage. And he can't. He can't be on stage at that time. And there's a shot of Paul Giamatti in the audience crying. And it is so powerful. If you're with the story, if you're with the story, out of context, it means nothing. But if you're with the story, you see the power of Carrie's performance and Jamadi, and they spend a lot of the movie together. They're both so good in that film. Now, Carrie made a lot of movies I don't love, which are just okay. He did Liar Liar, huge hit. Eh. You know, later on, he did Yes Man didn't really like it. One of my favorite movies of his, which is a little bit under the radar, is a renegade, super controversial film he did with Ewan McGregor called I Love You, Philip Morris, which, again, I'm not going to go into detail. It's loosely based on the true story of um, Stephen Russell, 
He was a con man who pulled off some of the most elaborate, crazy schemes you can imagine. And um, Ewan McGregor plays this character called Philip Morris. But that's a black comedy that I really like. I think it's absolutely amazing um, the way that it comes across. Made a lot of movies that I really just couldn't get behind. I love The Majestic. Frank Darabont, who had done Shawshank and The Green Mile, I think The Majestic is massively underrated. That, that's about 20 years ago. That's a film that was thought to be an Oscar contender, and it just kind of came out. Critics really weren't that excited about it. But he's somebody who always commands attention when he's on screen. Even in recent films, like, you know, the Sonic the Hedgehog movies, as Dr. Robotnik, um, he's riveted. And, you know, before I, before I close this episode, I wanted to point out one other movie, which is now about 10 years old, unfortunately, also with another actor who's gone, the late, great James Gandolfini. And it's the incredible Burt Wonderstone, starring um, Steve Carell, Steve Buscemi, and Alan Arkin, among others. It is, it's not a great movie, it's very good, but Jim's performance, again, it's under the radar masterclass in how to be a film actor when your first thing is that you're a comic. Basically, the story follows Steve Carell, mostly Steve Carell. He's this super successful uh, Vegas magician. He's supposed to be like a Siegfried and Roy with him and the um, Steve Buscemi character. Jim Carrey plays a renegade magician sort of a Chris Angel, David Blaine type, but much more hardcore. And his character is completely ridiculous. He's totally over the top and absurd. But Carrie sells every line, every minute of the film when he is on screen. He's literally taking over the movie from the stars. And this is something that not that many people have the ability to do. Jim Carrey has that that magic, he has that ability that when he's on screen, he's the only thing you see. And at the end of that movie, without, again, no spoilers, but he has a moment where he's almost, I believe he is supposed to be breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience, where his character pulls off another absurd stunt, and he kind of looks out and says, I guess I'm just a little ahead of my time. And Jim Carrey always, will always be ahead of his time because there's never going to be anybody like him again. There are great movie comics. There are people that have mastered art of film comedy and are funny in movies. Hell, Robin Williams, you can argue, had a, a better film career. I mean, I would say that he did, but you know, Robin's got the hardware. Robin won for Goodwill Hunting, which is not a comedy. You know, and there was that thing with Robin Williams where he would, it's like, he's better when he's not funny sometimes because a lot of his comedies like Father's Day, you know, sort of fell flat, but, Jim Carrey is extraordinary talent, and despite the fact that he has made a lot of movies, like he did a movie um, in the uh, mid-2000s, number 23, which was attempted a thriller, not good, not good. You, you could see that it could have been better, and eh, it just didn't work. And a lot of people had recommended the TV show that he did. It was about uh, stand-up comedy. Was it called Kidding or Joking? I, I don't remember the name, but I'm not going to Google it. But I was told that that was good. He got Golden Globe nomination for that too. Didn't win. But he's talked about maybe retiring, 
stepping away. But then he came back for Sonic the Hedgehog Part 2, which I've actually read is better than the first one. The first one is not good except when Jim Carrey is on screen. And then you're riveted because you never know what he's going to do, which in comedy is great because the unexpected is sometimes what draws the biggest laughs. And with that, we've reached the end of episode 59, the Jim Carrey happy birthday, happy 62nd birthday episode of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you all for joining me here on this Tuesday in New York. If you checked out episode 59 on YouTube channel, haven't done so already, please click like, subscribe, flip on the notifications. Join me for the audio version of the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the other platforms. Same thing. Haven't done so already. Click like, subscribe, turn on the notifications. I'll be back real soon with episode 60. Till then, peace out. Take care.